Hey everyone, quick announcement. If you want to support this podcast, check out my website, useconpodcast.com. There you'll find a link to my Patreon as well as some other interesting things, like the list of books and resources I use in putting each show together. Some other ways you can support this project are by subscribing to the show, writing reviews, or sharing the podcast on social media. One last thing, make sure you follow at useconpodcast on Twitter. Alright, now for the history of US economics. The story of U.S. economics is one of experimentation, trial and error, economic imperialism, and the forces of necessity. The arc of U.S. economics starts with 13 disjointed colonies who, after banding together, become a test tube of capitalist theories. In America's earliest days, the states were little more than a revenue line item on Great Britain's national income statement. America is one of many colonies spread out across the globe whose sole purpose was generating wealth for the British Empire. As we will explore in this episode, Britain's lust for wealth led to economic oppression of the 13 colonies. That oppression was enough to force the 13 colonies to band together under one flag and declare independence from the crown on July 4, 1776. Though the Declaration of Independence was a seminal document for the young nation's economic story, so too was another document published in the same year. In 1776, Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations, which poured the foundation for the School of Classical Economics. Smith's ideas and classical economics became the backdrop for U.S. capitalism. In this episode, we'll do an assessment of the colonial economy, its monetary system, and some of the economic theories which affected its development. We'll consider the economic conditions that led to the Declaration of Independence and finish with an overview of Adam Smith's theories, which would soon become sacrosanct in U.S. economic thought. The colonial economy was built around agriculture. Before the Revolutionary War, nearly 90% of the population made a living through farming. Tobacco was the colonial cash crop, comprising 50% of the region's exports. Tobacco was mostly grown in the southern regions because of the climate and the fertile soil, which was perfect for large-scale farming. For its part, the northern coastline proved ideal for the settlement of port cities. Shortly after their founding, the colonial economy resembled something like this. Tobacco was grown in the southern states like Virginia and Maryland, then delivered to the northern port cities like Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. These northern port cities became the primary ports of embarkation for tobacco en route to Britain. Meanwhile, in the north, industries like insurance, lumber, ship construction, and ironworking all began to emerge to accommodate the growing shipping industry. The colonies were in a perpetual state of economic limbo. They were subject to the taxation and extractive demands of the British Crown, yet were not fully-fledged British citizens, and had no representation in the British Parliament. The colonies were also on their own when it came to crafting the American economy. For example, in the pre-Revolutionary War era, the colonies lacked a unified currency. Instead, they used foreign currencies like the French guinea and the Spanish dollar, plus an amalgam of privately printed banknotes and state government-issued IOUs. In other words, the colonial monetary system was a chaotic melange of various notes and coins whose values were constantly fluctuating. It's a little strange to think about because in the 21st century, dollars are always issued by the federal government, but before there was a federal government, state and private banks took it upon themselves to print money. The first issuance of a state government getting involved in the money printing arena occurred when Massachusetts, somewhat desperately, issued about 7,000 pounds in 1690 to a troop of soldiers returning from a raiding mission in Quebec. The soldiers were accustomed to being paid from the spoils of their missions, but this time they returned empty-handed. Understanding that a band of idle, unpaid soldiers are just one rowdy night for mutiny, the state government quickly issued IOUs to the soldiers. 
The IOUs were literally nothing more than paper notes promising payment once the tax revenues materialized. But it didn't take long for the soldiers to begin swapping the IOUs amongst themselves and with merchants in exchange for goods and services. In other words, the IOU, literally just a paper note with no intrinsic value, became a currency. Economists call this kind of currency, one without any intrinsic value, a fiat currency, and Massachusetts was the first major example of fiat currency in the Western world. By the way, if we fast forward to the present day, fiat currency is the monetary system which the United States and most developed countries use currently. The paper dollars we carry around are just paper, but because we as a society have collectively agreed that they have value, we can use them to trade for goods and services. It sounds silly, but really anything could be used as a currency. History is full of examples of different things being used as a currency other than paper notes. For example, tobacco leaves have been used as currency, dried tally sticks, seashells, even a giant immovable rock on the outside of town the size of a car has been used as a currency. These rocks, by the way, they're an excellent example of the function that a currency serves in society, so I'm going to tell you about them a little bit. They were used on this tiny island in the Pacific called Yap. The stones could weigh as much as a car and be up to 12 feet in diameter. There's the story that while one of these stones was being transported to the island, the ship it was on sank in a storm. The crew managed to swim back to shore and told everyone what happened. What's amazing about it is that the people on the island decided that the stone could still be used as currency, even though it was at the bottom of the ocean. The ownership of the stone could still swap hands in exchange for goods and services on the island. If you think about it, it's not all that different from how we use money today in America. In exchange for buying a car, I can trade some quantity of value which neither I nor the car dealership can directly see. We both believe that that store of value is out there somewhere, be it in a bank account or at the bottom of the ocean. Regardless, we've agreed that the store of value now belongs to the dealership instead of me, and they're free to do with it as they please. And in exchange, I get a fancy car to drive off the lot. Anyway, what's important is that societies have something that they commonly agree on as valuable, and that that something could be transacted in exchange for goods and services. American society in the 21st century uses dollars, but American society in the 17th century used silver coins and IOUs. Fiat currency might sound so convenient and great, it being easy to transact, to carry, to store, and to trade, but it has a dark side too, and one which the state of Massachusetts was soon to discover. As we'll see in the history of U.S. economics, the country has proven very fickle around the use of fiat currency. Governments love currency by fiat because there's basically nothing that stops them from printing currency whenever they need to, say to fund a war or to bail out a giant banking institution. But prudent economists will point out that something's value is a function of its scarcity, and as such, if a currency is printed with reckless abandon, the currency's value necessarily drops. We call this inflation, by the way, and the state of Massachusetts was about to learn about it the hard way. Even though the state promised not to print any more paper notes after paying the soldiers with their IOUs, the temptation to print grew too strong to resist. In 1691, the Massachusetts state government issued an additional 40,000 pounds to settle all state debts. This is the dark side of fiat currency. It's fatally easy to abuse and a young government with no checks on the economic process was too weak to resist that urge. This, by the way, is the backbone of the argument supporting the gold standard. If a dollar is pegged to some quantity of gold, a government can't just print money willy-nilly. In other words, the gold standard acts as a leash on the money printing machine. We'll cover the gold standard more in later episodes. But anyway, the people of Massachusetts were accustomed to using silver coins as their currencies, not flimsy paper notes backed by the faith and credit of the Massachusetts state government, whatever that was supposed to mean. While the faith and credit of a colonial government didn't account for much, shocking, I know. 
Within just one year of the issuance of the Massachusetts State IOUs, the notes had fallen in value by nearly 40%. Despite their stellar loss in value, other state governments liked the Massachusetts model. It kind of makes sense. I mean, it costs basically nothing to print the notes, and then they can be used to pay off debts in the short term. And by the time the consequences of inflation roll around, the notes are in the hands of the people, and no longer in the government's balance sheet. Connecticut and Rhode Island soon got on board with paper notes, and by 1711, there were 240,000 pounds of paper notes in circulation in New England alone. But then something unexpected happened. It wasn't inflation, though that, that was no surprise. No, something else started seizing the colonial economy. Without anyone realizing it, all of the silver started to disappear out of circulation. With every new issuance of notes, the silver began to vanish across all of the colonies. Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island had no intention of causing the silver to vanish. Nobody did. So what was going on? Well, with all the paper notes, silver, and foreign currency competing in circulation, something called Gresham's Law began to derail the colonial economy. Gresham's Law is this. In an economy where there are competing currencies, the currency of lesser value will push the other currencies out of circulation. What it meant was that even though the colonial government thought they were increasing the money supply by printing paper notes, they were actually decreasing it. Here's why. Imagine, for example, living in Massachusetts in 1729, where the Spanish silver dollar, the English shilling, and the colonially backed IOU are all in circulation. The government has explicitly stated that IOUs shall be accepted as legal tender, lest the unwilling be subject to, quote, fines, imprisonment, or total confiscation of property, unquote. You decide you need a new pair of shoes. You can pay the shoemaker in precious metals or the rapidly inflating, increasingly worthless IOU, and he must accept either. You can't get rid of your IOUs fast enough considering the note's ever-diminishing purchasing power, so you happily give the notes to the shoemaker. He wants to get rid of the notes too as fast as he can, and he quickly gives them off to the butcher, who bums them off to the brewer, and then to the next poor merchant in that cycle that ends with whatever poor guy is holding the hat when the IOU has become so inflated the government can no longer redeem it. Everyone wanted to dump their paper notes onto the next guy. It became a race to the bottom. And it kind of makes sense. I mean, why would anybody part with their silver when they could just as easily part with their paper? People chose to hoard their precious metals and put the paper into circulation instead. In this way, the Spanish silver dollar and the English shilling found their ways out of circulation to be replaced with increasingly worthless paper notes. Here's another expression of Gresham's Law. Imagine now that you're an English merchant sailing into the Boston Harbor with a cargo of sugar. When you make port and unload your ship, the poor fellow in the example from a moment ago attempts to pay you in the IOUs. But what value does an IOU, backed by the faith and credit of the faulty Massachusetts State Bank, have back in England? Well, none, whatsoever. You insist to be paid in silver, and the buyer begrudgingly complies. Multiply this by every ship unloading goods in the Boston Harbor, and every harbor in the colonies, and the silver rapidly vanishes from Massachusetts and every other state to reappear in England or whatever country the colonies are doing trade with. The effect this diminishing money supply had on the colonial economy would manifest as a shortage of money. Silver was rapidly leaving circulation to be hoarded in people's homes or to be sent overseas. In response to the diminishing money supply, though, in 1711, the government of Massachusetts held a massive issuance of 500,000 pounds of paper notes. Consistent with Gresham's law, though, this had the unintended effect of driving the state's remaining silver out of circulation, which just worsened the money supply problem. The money supply shortage was felt beyond just Massachusetts, and by 1750, every colony had followed that state's example and issued their own versions of paper currencies. 
The sudden floods of paper notes gave rise to one of the first examples of an inflationary boom in the colonial economy. An inflationary boom occurs when an economy has a rapidly growing money supply and it manifests as the prices of goods going up and up. It makes sense. If there's more money in circulation, suppliers can charge more because people have more money to spend. Likewise, the purchasing power of those dollars decreases. Therefore, more dollars are needed to buy the same amounts of goods. Either way, the effect is that prices increase. The problem is when this dynamic gets out of control. If there's so much new money coming online, then prices race up and up into the stratosphere. Then if that money supply contracts for some reason, prices will come crashing back down. People's wealth, their fortunes, their savings, everything, it'll all vanish. Businesses lose customers and oftentimes fail, resulting in an increasing unemployment rate and an increase in the general rate of poverty. This part is called the deflationary bust. We'll watch the cycle of inflationary boom and deflationary bust over and over again throughout this podcast. But suffice it to say, even though the silver supply was leaving the country, the sudden deluge of paper notes coming out of the state governments caused prices to be highly volatile and unpredictable. In 1751, the British Parliament outlawed any further issuance of paper currency in New England and began to pressure the colonies to return to silver coins. Thirteen years later, in 1764, the exchange of paper money was altogether prohibited by Parliament, who now demanded that the colonies return entirely to a physical coinage. The Parliament demanded the halting of all paper money printing and insisted that the colonies gradually redeem any outstanding paper notes for silver. This move, which basically put the colonies on a silver standard, stabilized prices since the money supply as a physical currency is much harder to expand or contract than if it were paper notes. The British did more, though, to meddle in the colonial economy than just mandating the use of silver. The French and Indian War, which began in 1756 along the Ohio River, regarded territory disputes between Britain and France. The war was initiated by a force of colonials, loyal to Britain and led by a 22-year-old George Washington, no less, and it would last seven years and grow to embroil mainland Europe. Though the British emerged victorious, the war plunged the British treasury heavily into debt. Following the war, Britain turned to heavily taxing the colonies as a means of refilling the treasury's coffers. The Stamp Act of 1756 put a tax on any document that required the stamp of an official seal, such as a diploma, a business contract, a marriage license, lease agreements, and basically any kind of official document. Later, the Townshend Acts of 1767 put British taxes on all lead, glass, paper, and paint, and tea coming into the colonies. This gave Britain control over the pricing of American goods. Colonists hated this tax, and it sparked a fierce resistance in the form of protests and colonial assemblies to defy the British the right to tax these goods. Aggravated by taxation without representation, the colonies agreed to boycott British goods in the late 1760s. The major ports, such as Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, however, gradually felt pressure to permit goods into the colonies, especially considering the boycotts were eventually successful at ending the added taxation on many goods. Many goods, that is, except for tea. Perhaps you can see where this is going. When the time came for the boycott agreement to expire, many of the port cities decided against renewing it, thus allowing the tea to enter the colonies. At the same time, new tax legislation in England caused the incoming tea to become much cheaper than it had been previously, meaning that this shipment of tea would likely usurp American tea sales in the colony. The first shipment of tea under this new tax system was now sitting in the Boston Harbor, Accepting this shipment and allowing the tea to enter the colonies would have been a tacit approval of the new tax. It was against this backdrop in 1773 that a group of men boarded three ships, the Dartmouth, the Eleanor, and the Beaver, and threw into the Boston Harbor their cargoes of 45 tons of tea. 
Parliament responded to the Boston Tea Party with the passage of four new acts in 1774. With these acts, collectively called the Coercive Acts, Parliament hoped to punish the radicals of the colonies and force moderates to align themselves with the English crown. The Coercive Acts, the most egregious of which would shut down the port of Boston and freeze the economy of Massachusetts, had the opposite effect, however, and enraged colonials against Britain. Within a year after the Boston Tea Party, the first shots of the Revolutionary War were fired. More than any threat of war, Britain's threats against the colonial economy unified the states to take up arms. When the French and Indian War began, the colonies responded as loyal subjects and fought alongside the British soldiers against the French and France's Native American allies. In short, where war against the French caused the colonies to align themselves with the British, taxation caused the colonies to align themselves with each other. The colonists' first attempt at collective action was in 1765, when a Continental Congress convened in New York to decide how to respond to the Stamp Act. Empowered by collective action, the colonists succeeded in compelling Parliament to repeal the Act within a year. This success emboldened the colonists to further collectivize when Britain later increased its taxation and control of the colonies through the Coercive Acts. Impelled by economic threats, the colonies took up arms and declared independence on July 4, 1776. America's future was shaped by more than just its declaration of independence in 1776. In the same year, the Scottish philosopher Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations. This book criticized the economic dogmas of the day and laid the foundation for modern capitalist thought. Before The Wealth of Nations, European economic philosophy at the time, and America's too by association, were guided by the principles of mercantilism. Mercantilism said that because there's a limited quantity of gold in existence, a nation should do everything it can to keep that gold within its own borders and out of the hands of other countries. The desire to sequester gold entitled governments to regulate business. Governments also discouraged the flow of gold out of the country by levying protective tariffs on imported goods, causing imported goods to be less desirable because of their increased cost. This was the attitude in Europe and its colonies for much of the 16th and 18th centuries. The wealth of nations called into question this economic philosophy, and greatly upset the apple cart of European economics. America, on the other hand, who had just declared independence, took Smith's ideas and ran with them, incorporating Smith's notion of free markets, private property, and limited regulation. Free trade, that is trade without prohibitively high tariffs, was also promoted by Smith, though the colonists opted against this notion in favor of the revenue and the protection of young industries which tariffs can offer. Adam Smith was groundbreaking because he presented the idea that a nation's wealth was more defined by the goods and services available to its people and by their standards of living than by the amount of gold within the nation's borders. The Wealth of Nations outlines the theory of capitalism and free market economics, and in doing so, the book puts forth three major principles. One is the enlightened self-interest, two is a free market economy, and three is limited government. Regarding an enlightened self-interest, let me just quote the book. Quote, he intends only his own security, and by directing that industry in such a manner as its produce may be of the greatest value, he intends only his own gain. And he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Nor is it always the worse for society that it was no part of it. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of the society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it. Unquote. This excerpt contains the central theory of the book. By allowing people to freely pursue their own self-interests, they will, whether they mean it or not, benefit society as a whole. Smith calls this the invisible hand, that society will benefit the most when people are allowed to benefit themselves.
This takes us to the second tenet of the book, the promotion of a free market economy. Smith argues that governments shouldn't tariff or overregulate. They should simply allow markets to behave freely. Governments shouldn't set prices, they should allow prices to set themselves according to supply and demand. The allure of profit will naturally draw businesses to provide the goods a society needs, and the financial loss will naturally alert businesses not to overproduce or bring to market goods that nobody wants. Smith posits that this mechanism operates best when markets are allowed to operate in a free manner. The third tenet of the book, Limited Government, outlines the role that a government should play in a free market. That is to say, among other things, that government should provide for the common defense, enforce protection of private property and contracts, educate the population, and administer the courts. As we will see when we consider the U.S. Constitution through an economic lens, the Founding Fathers took many of Smith's ideas to heart and hard-coded them into the fiber of America's identity. The pre-revolutionary war era witnessed a collection of colonies with haphazard economies and little coordination unify themselves in the face of economic turmoil. When war on the western frontier wasn't enough to unify the colonies, taxation without representation and the threat that England might price American goods out of the market was. In the same year of 1776, the foundational text of capitalism was published in Scotland, whose doctrine permeated throughout the entirety of the new country's existence. As we will explore, the ideas put forth by Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations had an indelible effect on the future trajectory of America's economy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of U.S. Economics Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, follow the show on Twitter, at US Econ Podcast.